Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 120, The Mystery of the Mind, 10 Zen Questions. Dr. Susan Blackmore, a psychologist and longtime Zen practitioner, joins us to discuss what it means to explore consciousness from within and how that might illuminate the ongoing scientific exploration of consciousness. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. We are back with another episode, and I'm in the studio with Vincent Horn, my buddy. Yeah, we're here today over the phone with Susan Blackmore. She's in the United Kingdom, and we are going to be talking to her today about her newest book. It's called 10 Zen Questions. And a little background for Susan. She is the author of a couple books. Her first was called The Meme Machine, quite popular in the field that she's writing. And she's been a Zen practitioner for well over two decades. She's a psychologist, a writer, and a consciousness researcher. So thank you so much, Susan, for joining us. And we look forward to hearing your unique perspective on Zen and the Buddhist tradition and consciousness. Not at all. But actually, The Meme Machine was far from my first book. Oh, really? My first book was on out-of-the-body experiences in 1982. I'm pretty old. <laughs> um, and then I wrote a book on near-death experiences. I w- did research for ages on the paranormal, which I never found any evidence of the paranormal. I then wrote an autobiography called In Search of Delight, which described all my failed attempts to find any paranormal phenomena. And then I thought, you know, I've had enough of all this paranormal stuff. And um, then I turned to memes, and that's when I wrote The Meme Machine. And then several more books on consciousness since then. Uh, on consciousness since then. So would you say your current uh, main interests are on consciousness research? Oh, I, I, I find myself interested in all kinds of things, but they all have to do with the mystery of the mind in mm. some way and to do with how we got here and why our minds are the way they are. So it's always somewhere around evolution, consciousness. Those are the main themes. The memes work is because... It, I think it, it, it tells us how we evolved and how we got here. This wonderful kind of mechanistic, uh, bottom-up creation of, of design of, of the living world and of our minds, which I think fits wonderfully with, with, with codependent origination and, and the way the Buddha saw it such a long time ago. Um, and then consciousness, the nature of mind itself, you know, what does it mean to be aware of anything? So all of my work somehow kind of meanders around in these great mysteries. Mm. So you have this really interesting perspective that many people in your field probably don't in the field of psychology and consciousness research, that you've actually explored a discipline, a practice, a methodology even, that explores consciousness from a whole new angle, from within, instead of just exploring sort of the neurocorrelates or the outside. And I'm wondering how you see currently those two fitting, and this is a big question, we'll get more into the specifics with some of the you wrote in your book, but why you've taken both of these approaches together and how you see them fitting together. Well, first, I should say I'm not the only person doing it. Francisco Varela, who's now sadly died, was doing that. And there have been other people, um, Evan Thompson as well. There there are a few other people trying, but you're right, it's rare. To me, what happened was I, I began Zen practice nearly 30 years ago now, sort of spasmodically at first, but eventually settling down into daily practice about 25 years ago. 
And I thought it was really separate from my science. I mean, I was studying, you know, as I told you, psychology, trying to find the paranormal, trying to understand the neural correlates of consciousness and so on. And I thought of those things as very separate. But over the past few years, it seems more and more obvious to me that the scientists and philosophers trying to understand consciousness keep making assumptions about what consciousness is like. They keep saying things about their own mind, their own consciousness, like they assume them, like it's obvious that there's a stream of consciousness or that consciousness has contents and we've got to find the, the neural mechanisms underlying the contents of consciousness. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. When I sit every morning in meditation, it doesn't look that way to me. And, and if they are investigating, if they're making the wrong assumptions about consciousness, then they're looking for the wrong things. No wonder the science of consciousness is, 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 seems to be banging its head against a brick wall and, 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 and not getting anywhere very fast. So that's really why I decided to have a systematic look at some questions that really bridge, bridge those two domains. And I think they do fit rather well together. Very cool. And before we jump into what those questions were and what you found, I wanted to kind of go into this philosophical distinction that you make in the beginning of the book between these two common approaches to reality and on the one hand is idealism and the other hand materialism. And you mention in your book problems inherent in each of these approaches. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about those approaches and what the problems are in them. And you've already kind of hinted at this. Well, dualism is the natural way that people seem to think about the world. It's not only the way that Descartes described it. You know, we, we have the sort of um, mental world and the physical world, and according to Descartes, they, they met in the pineal gland in the brain. It's not only been philosophically important. Little children seem to begin very early on being natural dualists. There's a lot of research now showing that from the age of even two or three, children kind of imagine that people are kind of physical bodies inhabited by, by minds that sort of push them around. It seems to be the natural way of thinking. But for centuries, philosophers and scientists have recognized that dualism doesn't work. There can't be two kinds of stuff in the world. You know, it seems to be that I'm a conscious being inside my head looking out through, through my eyes. But, you know, if you look in the brain, you just, find, you just find neurons all connected up in millions of ways. You know, where is the me? Where is the mind? And if mind and brain are separate things, how can they interact? If they interact, they can't be separate things. So dualism is, is generally thought by nearly everybody to be hopeless. So the alternatives are you've got to have some kind of monism. You've got to say the world is made of one kind of stuff, not mm. two completely different kinds of stuff. And there your options, you know, crudely speaking, your options there are either to plump for materialism, which a lot of scientists do, and say or everything, the whole world is made of material stuff, you know, atoms and molecules and whatever, and there, there is nothing else. There's no mind or, you know, spirit or whatever. It's all material. Then you have real trouble accounting for consciousness. How come there can be... You know, the blueness of the blue sky I'm looking at now or the greenness of those trees over there or the feeling of my feet on my desk as they are at the moment. You know, how can these feels and, and experiences arise from a material world? On the other hand, if you take the other extreme and say, well, the world is all made of thoughts or the world is all, you know, it's all mind, then you have a trouble with explaining the existence of the physical world because everybody's mind is different. Everybody experiences things in a different way. And yet we can all agree that there is a desk here and that it's holding up my feet and this chair that I'm sitting on um, is solid and so on. So philosophically, there is an enormous problem. As soon as you allow consciousness and experiences into the picture of science, you have a problem. And nobody has solved this problem. 
I mean, lots of people say they have, and then other people disagree. Basically, there is no agreed solution to this fundamental problem about how we fit together a physical universe and, and our own private, subjective, conscious experiences. And when you're describing the monism approach of idealism, I can already think back to different Buddhist schools taking that same approach, and it sounds like... Yeah. This has been a problem even in the Buddhist tradition for thousands of years. Indeed it has. And they have had, you know, remarkably sophisticated arguments about these things, just as we have in, in Western science and philosophy. And I would say that they, too, have not solved it in a kind of intellectual way. I mean, you can't look to Buddhist literature, as far as I can tell, and find the solution that we can then adopt. They've argued all about this. Now, you could say that people who have realized oneness, who have overcome duality have seen it experientially have seen directly how not to be dualist how not to divide the world up and that that is what enlightenment is is about you you might want to say that but it's it's, it's tricky then arises the question which fascinates me you know if, if you were enlightened if you were able you know able to perceive the world without delusion without self getting in the way without dividing things up into this and that and, and mind and that and whatever, you wouldn't necessarily, I think, be able to say what it was that you had seen or solve the problem in a, in a way that would satisfy Western scientists or, 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 or philosophers. Yeah, I mean, it seems like just on a common sense level, that wouldn't give you any specific knowledge or any technical knowledge about the field of neuroscience, for instance. No, indeed. Indeed. But, you see, it is a really interesting question. The way I've put the question to myself is this. If you had a, a really, really fantastic neuroscientist who really understood the brain and knew everything about the brain, if that person then became enlightened, would they then be able to describe what was happening in the brain? And similarly, if you took some great Zen master who's really seen the nature really properly, and then train that person in neuroscience, mm -hmm. would they be able to say the answer in neuroscientific terms? I don't know. Mm. But in a way, that's what, I'm just making little creepy steps towards, you know, little tiny steps towards trying, trying to get at that sort of question, because it seems to me, you know, I'm, what, the way I described it then is, is, is extreme and far-fetched, but we can at least, those of us who know a bit of neuroscience and have done some Zen training, can at least begin mm. to try to see whether one can illuminate the other. And it seems like from having a little bit of experience in both, or even significant experience in both, at least it seems to me that that person would then be able to, or those people would be then able to ask maybe better questions about the thing. Exactly. Exactly. I think that is the, the best that I want to hope for from my book, is that it might inspire people to be able to ask better questions and therefore go off and, and hunt for answers in more, in more productive ways. Well, thanks for giving me a perfect segue because we, we do want to talk about your book and I, and I do want to talk about the questions that you ask in there and obviously 10 Zen questions kind of tells you a little bit about how many you ask, but tell us a little bit about the questions you ask and the, kind, and the methodology that, that was behind it. All the questions are ones that somehow get at the mystery of consciousness. Some of them are um, well-known Buddhist koans Others are just questions that I set myself because I wanted to have a go at them. They're, they're all questions that, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I sit around and I'm trying to think about something, trying to understand something, and I think, oh, if only I could sit down quietly and, and really have a clear mind, really, really answer this question instead of being distracted all the time, and then thought, hmm, 
Well, that's precisely what meditation is. It's being able to sit down with a still, quiet mind and ask a question for hours on end. So that was the motivation. And I used my, you know, years of, of Zen training. And what I did was, for some of the questions, what's in the book is a report of retreats that I went on, koan retreats, which were deliberately set up um, week-long retreats in which you, all the people on the retreat tackled the question for a whole week. So I think three of the chapters are descriptions of those retreats. The rest are questions I set myself, and I did on solitary retreats. I did several solitary retreats in the mountains in Wales in a little farm, old farmhouse, miles from anywhere, no gas or electricity or phone or anything. And it's quite, it's quite interesting being up in the mountains by yourself. Nothing like being a real, you know, uh, a monk up in the Himalayas, but still, you know, at least uh, same idea if a little bit mm-hmm. uh, uh, more down to earth. Others I actually did in my own garden. I got a garden shed down the end of the garden and I would set myself, depending on, you know, the time I had available, four days, five days, in which I, I slept in the house, but I went out to my garden shed and spent all day there doing the traditional Zen practice, half an hour of sitting and 10 minutes of slow walking, half an hour sitting, 10 minutes of maybe weeding the garden, half an hour sitting, and so on most of the day. And what I would do in a typical day would be to spend the first couple of half-hour sessions just calming the mind. And then perhaps in the third or fourth session, I would take whatever that day's question was and sit with that question. And then at the end of the day, I went indoors, didn't look at the email, didn't look at the post, didn't do anything else. I went straight to my computer and just kind of splurged out what I felt, felt I had learned about that question and then dropped it and went back to the meditation. And then I kind of tidied it up to make it, I hope, make more sense for the book. But all of these questions I've been asking for years before I I did that sort of final practice for for writing the book. And what were some of the things that you discovered through this investigation that, that you think would be really interesting for people to hear about or that were really surprising to you? Some of them are not surprising at all and, and won't surprise all of you listening out there. And then some of them are involve really a traditional hunt for the self. Mm. And we all know that when you hunt for the self, you don't find it. But the, the, the attempt to hunt for the self is always very interesting because you keep kind of jumping on things and thinking, ah, oh, oh no, that, and, well, hang on a minute, I've now created another one, and which one is superordinate to the other, and ah, let the whole lot collapse, and you know, all of these things. They're very interesting to do, and I don't get bored of doing those kind of things. But they're not, they're not very surprising. Similarly, the sort of, you know, Douglas Harding's headless view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I found myself just rediscovering the headless way by really concentrating on, well, who's looking and from where are they looking and what is being seen and finding that I am what is seen. And I think that really is very similar to, the, to the, the headless way because what you see is what you see part of your body and you kind of look from your knees and then you see your tummy and then you see, and it sort of disappears and you think, well, there should be a head there. Well, what is that? Oh, it's the world again. That kind of flip, many of the questions kind of pushed me in, into that flip. And that is a way I think of simply sitting with no one sitting. Mm. But when you ask about something surprising, I think the most surprising thing 
was a little difficult perhaps to explain, but it comes out of the first two questions. The first question is, am I conscious now? And this is a question I've used for years with my students. I've taught consciousness courses at different universities in Bristol. And I've always got my students to spend as much time as they can in the week between lectures asking themselves questions like this. And the first question is always, am I conscious now? Seems such an obvious question, doesn't it? But the weird thing about that question is the answer is always yes. At least, unless you've done an awful lot of practice when this integrates. But basically, the question is always yes. And yet, when I would go up to my students and like catch them unawares and go, now? Oh, damn! You get, because they get this kind of sense of, oh, of course, I wasn't. I was somewhere else. I was distracted. I, there's a sense of when, when you ask yourself the question, am I conscious now? It's like coming awake. Mm-hmm. It's like waking up. Oh, of course I'm conscious now. But hang on a minute. Was I a moment ago? Now, I think this is very closely related to the whole Buddhist practice of mindfulness. Right, right. And I've done a lot of mindfulness practice and had this infuriating thing where, you know, you, you set out to be mindful all day. <laughs> this is silly, really, but, you know, have a go at it anyway. And, and then you find you've gone off into distraction and you pull yourself back and go, oh, of course, I'm here now. So the question, am I conscious now, is, is similar to practicing mindfulness. But it provokes this other question, well, what was happening before I woke up and became mindful? What, because most of my life and most of ordinary life until you practice mindfulness is this kind of darkness or sleep or whatever it is that is, that is what you've woken up from when you ask the question. So my second question was to investigate as deeply as I possibly could what was I conscious of a moment ago? to try to see whether I could, as it were, look backwards into the darkness Mm. that was there before I woke up in asking, am I conscious now? Now, this is interesting to me from the neuroscience point of view because the neuroscientists are assuming that all of the time in anybody's life, there must be an answer to the question, what is that person conscious of at the moment? And they go and look for the neural correlates of consciousness. They look for what's happening in the brain that corresponds to what the person is conscious of. But if most of the time people are going around, like, not awake, as it were, then what, what's going on? The curious thing that I discovered was that the more I practiced asking what was I conscious of a moment ago, the more I discovered that there were lots and lots of backward threads. Right now, at this moment, I could say to you, if I, do, if I do now what I was doing then over all those, you know, many, many hours and days of practice, I could say, oh, well, I can remember that bird singing out there. I must have been listening to that. Oh, but hang on a minute. Also, I can hear the clock ticking, and, and I can sort of remember that as it went backwards in time. So was I conscious of that? Well, they didn't have anything to do with each other. Oh, and I've been waving my arms in front of me. You can't see, but I'm talking to you as though you're here, and I'm waving my arms. And I was visually aware of that, but that had nothing to do with the blackbird. And there were all these different multiple threads going backwards. Which one was I conscious of? Well, I don't know. And the more I sat there in meditation and asked what was I conscious of a moment ago, the more I realized that I didn't know. There were all sorts of choices. I could choose one of a dozen or more threads of what was kind of there as, as, as a past moment. Now, if I don't know what I was conscious of, for sure no scientist can find out because there's nothing in the brain that tags what's conscious. That's what they're looking for. So if they're looking for what I was conscious of when I wasn't asking the question, they're never going to find it. And that was a surprising discovery. 
And that, that, that gets into this whole issue of memory, right? And I remember one of your yeah. questions, I remember one of your questions being about memory and time. <laughs> there is no time. What is memory? Mm. Uh, my teacher, John Crook, saw this written over in, in a kind of metalwork kind of arch over a door in uh, Lantau Island in, in Hong Kong, um, where he first began his Buddhist training. And he used this as one of the questions on the koan retreats. And what he did at the beginning of these week-long retreats was give us all a sheet of paper with, I don't know, a dozen simple questions or koan stories on it. And we had to choose one that we would then work on for the entire week. And that one just leapt out at me. Mm. There is no time. What is memory? It's a really interesting question statement, statement question. You know, you can, you can agree there is no time. And then say, what is memory? Or you can say, well, of course there's time. And, and, and you can go into time and say, yes, here it is. I'll, I'll find it. And then what's memory? Or say, well, no, there isn't any time. And, and, and then you can uh, um, say, well, there isn't really any memory if there isn't any time. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways of exploring that one. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much juicy stuff in here. And it seems like you, you'd really <laughs> yeah, have to. Yeah, there's a lot. And, and it seems like you'd really have to in some way. I mean, you could read, I could read this book, but in some ways... I'd almost have to replicate the experiment to, to really see some, some of the answers that you, you're coming to in this. Um, ah, or, or would exactly I? exactly the point of the book. I mean, I'm glad you say that because that's what I would love. If my book inspired other people to sit, you know, other people who have, have some practice already and can sit and, and ask these questions and see, do they find out similar things? Do they find out different things? In fact, I've, I've set up a blog and there's lots of people commenting about, you know, what they found or what they haven't found or what they agree or disagree about or whatever. And I hope it's a, a, an interesting discussion because from a scientific point of view, if everybody finds something different, then we're not going to get anywhere. And so it's kind of important that it's not just me asking these questions. But also from the pleasure point of view, I hope, I, I try to keep the book short. It's really, it's way, way shorter than any book I've ever written before. And it's got these little pictures which I painted to go in between, you know, there's a short section and a little picture. And that's supposed to sort of say to you, just stop reading a minute and just explore in your own mind this, you know, whatever it is. And we talked a little bit uh, about the possibility of a neuroscientist asking these sorts of questions and the possibility that they would come up perhaps with uh, interesting answers. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that because one of the uh, guests we interviewed recently named Shinzen Young, you may know of him. Mm-hmm. I and, don't know him personally. Yeah, he was talking to us about a similar thing, that he's interested in training neuroscientists in an understanding of classic enlightenment so that they could then bring that understanding into their into their trade, into the neuroscience. And that he, he's really interested in this neuroscientific paradigm for enlightenment. And I'm wondering how these kind of questions would contribute to that, potentially. Um, oh, I'd love to be one of his trainees. I, I <laughs> do tell him I've got a willing trainee here. There's plenty of scope for, for more training there. But I, I think these questions would contribute. I think, I think that what he's trying to do is, has a similar motivation to what I'm trying to do to bring together a tradition that says, if you want to understand the mind, here is a practice that helps you sit down, look at a white wall, calm the mind, and you'll find out. And another tradition that says, here's a brain, here are scientific instruments, here's a whole history of science, we can find out that way. I think both he and I, in different ways, are are, are trying to bring those two together. And here's the interesting question to me. What do you think might happen 
uh, if they are brought together? I would like to think that if they, if they really came together, that it would make it, on the one hand, it would make it easier for people to see clearly, to see through delusion, to drop clinging to self and so on. And on the other, it would help us understand how the brain works, how it evolved the way it did, why we get into these delusions and why we suffer. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.